You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Twenty-five years ago, in September 1993, on the White House lawn, some of our listeners will remember President Bill Clinton presided over a handshake between PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, agreeing to the Oslo Accords. We were told they laid the foundation for a permanent peace deal within five years that would create two states side by side. The three men won the Nobel Peace Prize the next year. For comment, we turn to Muin Rabani. He's a senior fellow at the Institute for Palestine Studies. He writes for The Nation and the London Review of Books. He's been a guest on Democracy Now!, Al Jazeera, and the BBC. Muin Rabani, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. Well, that was 25 years ago. Donald Trump, when he was running for president, pledged something new. A deal of the century was his phrase. A deal of the century that would end the decades-old Mideast conflict. Where do we stand today on the deal of the century? Well, I've characterized it not so much as the ultimate deal as, as Trump and his team like to characterize it, but more as the ultimate fait accompli, meaning that what they're seeking to do, rather than taking the traditional approach of you know, uh, publicizing an initiative and then inviting the parties to negotiate terms, what they're actually doing is trying to change reality on the ground so that their preferred solution takes hold and perhaps then publish a one or two page uh, initiative. And quite clearly from what we've seen so far, we see the Trump administration embracing really the most extreme Israeli agenda in dealing with issues such as not even, you know, uh, calling the Israeli presence in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip an occupation, seeking to define the Palestinian refugee question out of existence, legitimating further settlement expansion, and so on. And, of course, um, recognizing uh, Israel's sovereignty over Jerusalem, effectively occupied and annexed East Jerusalem as well, moving the U.S. Embassy 
from Tel Aviv, where it's been situated uh, since the beginning of the conflict, to uh, Jerusalem, and effectively severing diplomatic relations with the Palestine Liberation Organization by shuttering the PLO office, uh, the PLO mission in Washington, D.C., revoking the visas of staff and family members, closing their bank accounts, and so on. You argue in your new piece in The Nation that uh, Trump's actions over the past 18 months, quote, hardly constitute a reversal of U.S. policy. It seems that way to a lot of us. The United States never before had its embassy in Jerusalem, never before closed the PLO mission in Washington, D.C. So what do you mean? The point I was making is, is that it's not as radical a departure from prior U.S. policy as might appear at first sight. So let's take, for example, the closure of the PLO mission in, um, in Washington, the expulsion of, uh, of the Palestinian, the head of the Palestinian mission. The basis for this policy is actually a Senate uh, resolution passed in 1987 called the Anti-Terrorism Act which made it illegal for the PLO to operate in any way, shape, or form on American soil. And even at the height of the Oslo process, that act was never, uh, was never rescinded. And in fact, in 1987, um, Afif Safia, a Palestinian diplomat who was at the time, I believe, a resident scholar at Harvard University, was expelled from the United States on the basis of that act. And I think it's also important to note that that act was adopted with overwhelming bipartisan support. So it's it's hardly a, a policy that's unique to Trump or even the Republican Party. Secondly, um, uh, during the past several decades, the reason that the PLO has been able to um, uh, maintain a mission in the United States, again, it's not because the U.S., rescinded the Anti-Terrorism Act, but rather because successive administrations would issue six monthly waivers, um, meaning that the definition under U.S. law of, of the PLO as a terrorist organization never changed. And the U.S. throughout these years has dealt with the PLO as a terrorist organization on, uh, on probation. Similarly, if you look at the issue of Jerusalem, this is rooted in bipartisan congressional resolutions that, that were passed with overwhelming uh, majorities of both parties. And the reason that Trump was able to so easily recognize Israeli sovereignty over Jerusalem and move the U.S. embassy there was because he simply stopped issuing the six monthly waivers that previous ad administrations had been issuing. So it's not as if he introduced a entirely new policy, but rather took an existing policy to its logical conclusion. We're talking here on the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Oslo Agreement. I, I wonder if you think the Oslo Accords were doomed from the start. Many Israeli doves say the turning point came two years after Oslo, when Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by an Israeli ultra-nationalist opposed to peace, and that that was the real turning point. What do you think? Well, that's a fairly widespread view, which is that the Oslo Agreement and, and therefore the possibility of an Israeli-Palestinian two-state settlement was killed with the assassination 
of Yitzhak Rabin, and then buried with what by, by all appearances appears to have been the murder of the Palestinian leader, Yasser Arafat. I, I take a very different view, which is I would urge your listeners to read the Oslo Agreement, the, the initial September 90, 1993 agreement. It's only two or three pages long. And when you read that document, you notice that there are certain key terms missing. There is, for example, no mention of the Israeli occupation. There's no mention of Palestinian self-determination. There's no mention of a Palestinian independent Palestinian state. There is no agreed framework for the resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, the only framework that's mentioned is UN Security Council Resolutions 242 and 338. And the problem with that is that Israel and the rest of the world, including Palestinians, have incompatible interpretations of what those resolutions mean. Secondly, there is no um, enforceable deadline or schedule for the implementation of those agreements. And in addition to that, there is no binding arbitration mechanism. And so therefore, um, my argument actually since August of 1993, from even before these um, agreements were signed, is that they sought to reformulate the Israeli occupation in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in the face of the challenges it faced during the first intifada, rather than to find a formula to end it. And so my argument would be the real lesson of the Oslo Agreement is not that um, it failed, but, but that it succeeded all too well. And it's an agreement that remains very much alive today. And the lesson to be learned is that the two-state settlement has effectively never been seriously attempted. Last question on the this anniversary of the Oslo Accords. Yossi Balin was one of the Israeli negotiators in the Oslo talks. He recently said, quote, Trump will not be there forever. Eventually, as it was in Oslo, it's up to the Israelis and the Palestinians. If both sides want to make peace, we will make peace, close quote. That is, the Americans are not the key to what Israel is doing. I wonder if you agree with that. Not really, because I think what we need to recognize is, you know, this is this is not a conflict um, between two states. Um, this this can't be compared, for example, to the conflict between Ethiopia and Eritrea or or any other two states. Uh, uh, you could have mentioned this is in fact a colonial struggle between an occupying power and an occupied people. Um, and so the idea that, you know, it can, you simply have to sit these parties around the table um, to deal with each other as equals and reach a solution is not something that's going to happen. And I think the problem here is that the role of the United States has been to, on the one hand, um, monopolize Israeli-Palestinian diplomacy to the exclusion of any other party, whether it's the international community acting through the United Nations or any coalition of, uh, of states. And secondly, the United States being the strategic ally of Israel while considering the other party, the Palestinians, a terrorist organization on probation, as I was saying earlier, um, uh, has acted primarily to not only support Israel, but to shield Israel and its actions 
from in, from any accountability. In other words, uh, ensuring Israeli impunity in its dealings with the Palestinian people. And so I think this whole formula of bilateral negotiations under exclusive American sponsorship has not only um, demonstrated its absolute failure during the past quarter century, but it has also done extraordinary damage to the prospects of, of reaching a just and lasting peace in the Middle East. Muin Rabani, his article, Trump Team's Magical Thinking on Palestine, appears at thenation.com. Muin, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.